The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Nice to be with you in person and those watching virtually. Uh, It's nice to be back in the Commonwealth Club uh, in person, seeing each other face to face, mask to mask. Thank you very much for being with us. (laughs) Good evening and welcome to today's in-person and virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California featuring U.S. Congresswoman Liz Cheney. I'm Dan Ashley, news anchor of ABC7 Television in San Francisco and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and proud to be your moderator for tonight's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Future of Democracy series, supported by Betsy and Roy Eisenhart. And we know that you will enjoy our discussion tonight. Now I am very pleased to introduce today's guest, Liz Cheney, Congresswoman from Wyoming. Thank you. Liz Cheney serves as Wyoming's lone member of Congress in the U.S. House of Representatives. She was first elected in 2016 on a platform of restoring America's strength and power in the world and pursuing conservative solutions to create jobs, cut taxes and regulation, as well as expand America's energy, mining, and agriculture industries. As a prominent Republican, Representative Cheney made national headlines, of course, earlier this year when she voted to impeach President Trump, saying he provoked the January 6th Capitol attack. Uh, She has also vowed to fight to keep President Trump out of office if he runs again and has challenged all assertions by President Trump and his supporters that the 2020 election was fraudulent and stolen. This led to her removal as chair of the House Republican Conference, where she was the third-ranking Republican. She was recently appointed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to serve on the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. In a Washington Post opinion column published this past May, Representative Cheney wrote, the Republican Party is at a turning point and Republicans must decide whether we are going to choose truth and fidelity to the Constitution, end quote. She went on to write, history is watching, our children are watching. We must be brave enough to defend the basic principles that underpin and protect our freedom and our democratic process. I am committed to doing that no matter what the short-term political consequences might be, end quote. So today we're going to have a conversation about the outlook for American democracy and many other things as well. Please once again welcome Representative Liz Cheney. Thank you. And I'm going to 
encourage all of you, there's cards at your at the ready to send questions up when you have them, and I'll try to get to them. And when you see me looking at my phone, I'm not doing social media. <laughs> I'm not texting friends. I'm not bored. I'm responding to text questions that they will send me from our virtual audience. <laughs> so not to worry. Um, great to be with you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's begin with the cost. Uh, as I said in the introduction, your stance uh, on President Trump. Let's begin with the cost, political and personal, of standing up against the president uh, and your party as you did. Describe the consequences of that. Well, uh, thank you, first of all, for having me. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club. Um, you know, I, I suppose um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the, the, the cost or the consequences. Uh, I really do think that where we are uh, as a country and where we are as a party uh, is, is at a really perilous moment. And uh, I think that uh, when you look at uh, what happened on January 6th, when you look at uh, what former President Trump did in the, in the lead up to the 6th, what he did in failing to send help while the Capitol was under attack, and what he's continued to do since, um, he's demonstrated that he is willing to sort of roll through um, any guardrail of democracy. And, and I think that is very dangerous. And I think that... Uh, all of us as Americans um, and those of us especially who are elected and who have taken an oath uh, under God to the Constitution have a responsibility and an obligation to protect the republic and, and to protect um, the peaceful transfer of power. So many of your colleagues, Congresswoman, chose not to do that, Republican colleagues. They didn't take that same stand. Why do you think that was the case? And was it worth it to you politically and personally, to take that stand? Well, uh, look, I think that um, we really, we're at a, an unprecedented moment, and I think that um, there were uh, members who made political calculations um, instead of taking a step back and saying, you know, the republic only functions if we are faithful to the Constitution. And, and so, you know, from my perspective, there, it wasn't a choice. There is no choice um, because of the, the gravity of what happened. Uh, and it was a very near-run thing. Uh, you know, the uh, attempt to delay the count and the violence, of course, itself, um, it didn't work. It didn't work. People sometimes say, well, our institutions held that day. And they did. But, but institutions don't defend themselves. Mm. And and they held because of a lot of brave people, um, people at the local level who refused to yield when former President Trump, you know, called them and said, just find me some votes. Uh, it held because Vice President Trump or Vice President Pence uh, refused to reject slates of electors. Um, but but it, it depends on the institutions depend upon people defending them. Before we go any further, just because you were there that day on the 6th, describe your experience in the Capitol as rioters began to storm the building. Um, I was. I was on, on the floor, um, and uh, we were in the process of, of debating the electoral votes, um, <laughs> and the security, uh, the D Secret Service details, or Capitol Police details, came onto the floor and evacuated... Um, you know, the speaker and uh, 
some of the other leaders on on both sides who happen to be on the floor. Um, but many of us, you know, were there and stayed, and and it it was something you never think is you can't even imagine it's going to happen. I mean, we could hear um, the mob approaching. We kept getting announcements from Capitol Police, you know, going up to the the speaker's chair and announcing, um, you know, that that uh, the mob had breached the Capitol. The mob was in the rotunda. The tear gas had been released. What was going through your mind at that? It, it just was surreal. surreal, and I was angry. Um, and uh, but you know we were following instructions. They told us to get gas masks out from under the chairs and begin to put them on. And um, you did that? Uh, I got it out. I didn't put mine on. We, uh, you know, there was many people sort of opened them up and and waited to see whether or not we needed. When to you them say on. you were angry, what made you angry? Um, I was angry because. Uh, you know, this is the United States of America, and and the Congress was in in the process of conducting one of our constitutional responsibilities, which is to count the electoral votes and um, certify the winner of the presidential election. And the notion that 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 we had, you know, a, a violent mob that had invaded the Capitol uh, was just you couldn't couldn't believe it. Does it? In, in the aftermath of that and what happened in terms of President Trump uh, trying to nullify and, and discredit the election, should do you feel that some of your Republican colleagues should be embarrassed by their behavior, even ashamed of the, what by what they did do or did not do? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when 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 you are entrusted with the responsibilities that we have, um, and and look, if you look at what uh, just about everybody said. Immediately after the attack, um, you know, people knew at that moment, you know, on the 6th and the 7th and up until, um, you know, many days after what had happened and how dangerous it was and how wrong it was. Uh, And so then to have many of those same people, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy, for example, the Republican leader, decide that he's going to go to Mar-a-Lago before the month is out to essentially rehabilitate the most dangerous president in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have an explanation for that, but it is it is certainly something that that uh, that he should be ashamed of. How it, it, perhaps it hasn't been hard because you are obviously doing what you think is right, but you really have taken a very vocal stand against some of your Republican colleagues. That has been isolating, I would suspect, for you in Congress. Am I right? Well, you know, again, I don't I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that because. What matters is the future of the country, and what matters is the future of the party. Um, you know, I am a Republican. The first person I ever voted for was Ronald Reagan. Uh, I'm a conservative Republican, and I believe that our party has to be based on truth. And I believe that the majority of Republicans across this country know that, and that you know we have to decide as a party. Uh, if we're going to be back in a position where we're winning elections, we have to be able to to convey to people we believe in the truth, we believe in the Constitution, we're going to conduct ourselves in a way that's serious and responsible. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm committed to making sure that that's the direction we go in. And we're going to leave this topic in just a moment, Congresswoman. But uh, when, what did you think as you heard the president and others try to discredit this election? You never believed, or did you, that Joe Biden didn't win the election fair and square? 
I did not believe that he lost. I, I knew that Joe Biden had won, had won the election. election. Yes. When you heard the rhetoric otherwise, what did you think from your Republican colleagues in leadership positions and the president? Well, you know, we, we went through a process. So after the election itself, um, you know, the president had every right to uh, bring legal challenges. Uh, we have a process to do that. Either either candidate could have done it. The president did that and he had a right to do it. Uh, but but once you get to the point where over 60 judges have said there's no merit to these claims, um, then then, you know, there's a moment. And particularly once the Electoral College has met, uh, then it becomes very dangerous for uh, president of the United States to reject the rulings of the courts. And it's one thing to disagree with court rulings. You know, I, I happen to think, for example, that. Uh, Justice Roberts got it wrong on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, our First Amendment rights give us the protection to say that. But you don't get to ignore the rulings. And that is what President Trump was doing. And so as we watched after the certification, the continued claims, the continued efforts to try to delay, uh, the continued efforts to pressure local officials, you know, that took us into territory we had never been in before. And when you have the president saying the same things about our process, that it doesn't work, that it can't convey the will of the people, the same things, for example, that the Chinese government says about democracy, um, people really need to stop and think about what, what he did and what he continues to do and why that's so dangerous. Well, you believe, as many do, that President Trump inspired and ignited the rage that led to the Capitol riot. Beyond his role, uh, more broadly, what is happening in the country that makes this really, as you said, once unthinkable act even possible? How could we possibly get to this point where hundreds of Americans would storm the American Capitol? Well, I think there's a lot going on in the country, um, but I think that, uh, you know, his actions, and if you look, for example, just at uh, what, the uh, defendants are saying now we've had something like 600, um, uh, you know, uh, charged. Uh, and if you look at, at their pleadings, you know, many of them say, well, we were there because President Trump told us to come. Um, and so I think there, there clearly was a provocation. Um, I think that one of the really important things the Select Committee has to do is understand more about the planning that went on, understand more about Um, the financing of the effort. And I I think it's also clear if you look at many of the videos that have been out there publicly that um, there were organized, you know, paramilitary uh, groups within um, those who who breached the Capitol. And I think we need to understand exactly what those connections are and how that happened. All right. Uh, Congresswoman, besides what happened at the Capitol, and we are going to move on from that, what would you identify as Donald Trump's greatest failure as president? Well, uh, nothing comes close to, um, you know, what he did uh, in terms of, uh, you know, attempting uh, to to steal the election. Um, but I, I do think that um, he had some good policies. Uh, I think that what he did with respect to tax policy was good. I think what he did with respect to deregulation was good. So there were good policies. Um, what he did to fund the military was good. Uh, but I think, you know, what we're seeing today, for example, in Afghanistan, 
Joe Biden bears responsibility for the decision, which has led directly to this just catastrophe. Um, but President Trump said all along he wanted to withdraw our forces, and he, um, you know, instructed uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and others to negotiate with the Taliban. And and so I think you know that certainly is something that you have to point to to say, you know, that setting the United States down the path where we're negotiating with terrorists. Uh, where we've made concessions to the terrorists. We, you know, uh, basically committed that we would have 5,000 prisoners released in Afghanistan, um, completely sidelined the the Afghan government, uh, and set us on the path that that led to what we're seeing today. Uh, And so I think certainly that is, that's a failing. And I think the management of COVID is a failing. It's a failing. But, and you you answered actually my next question, which was on the other side of that question, which what was you, what do you think was his greatest success as president? And you pointed to a few things that you believe he did quite well. Yeah. And I, look, I think um, if you look at in particular um, the funding of the Defense Department, uh, you know, we, we're, we live in a world that is uh, full of uh, an array of threats that um, the velocity of, of the, the, the threats, the the number of them, mm-hmm. um, it, it's a very dangerous world, and and the danger is accelerating. Uh, and his commitment to provide the resources necessary for several years for the Defense Department to begin to do what's necessary to meet those threats, I think, was a very important right. policy. And I do want to turn my next area of uh, conversation here is Afghanistan. But before that, let me uh, button this with uh, one of the questions from a member of the audience. And I'll paraphrase it a little bit uh, for the purpose of this conversation. Going back to the election and the claims that it was illegitimate, they won by a landslide, as he said, which we knew not to be the case. There are still a great number of people in the public. I don't know how many lawmakers really believe that, but the public believes, a number of Republican uh, faithful, that that is the case, that he did in fact win the election and that Joe Biden somehow stole the election. How do... How do you and the Republican leadership push back against that notion and make it clear to members of the party and party supporters that this was a legitimate election so that we don't have this dangerous cycle happening every four years? Well, I think that part of it comes with having leaders of my party recognize they aren't bystanders. And, Mm -hmm. you know, too often what's happening today is you have party leaders on the Republican side who who know that it wasn't stolen. Uh, they know that what Donald Trump is saying is not true, um, but they go along with it. And and that, you know, that's a dereliction of their duty um, because, you know, we aren't bystanders. We have the responsibility and the ability to help, um, help educate the public uh, and to make sure that people understand the facts. And I, I think actually it's one of the really important things the select committee has to do, um, which is walk through um, the different aspects of the lie about the election and help people to understand and recognize um, that these claims are just not true. It doesn't mean that there wasn't fraud, um, but there was not sufficient fraud to have changed the outcome. And, uh, you know, the courts have decided that. And there's fraud to some degree in every election. Right. Sure. And this is that one of those moments that I'm looking at my phone. So. Or I've just bored you already. <laughs> Not at all. Just making sure I don't leave anyone out. Let's turn now, uh, Congresswoman, to Afghanistan. The images we've seen in the last couple of days of Afghans running on the tarmac, trying to get on airplanes, 
obviously heartbreaking. And certainly for many of the men and women who served in yeah. Afghanistan, infuriating mm -hmm. to some degree. Why did it happen? Yeah. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, you know, I think, first of all, uh, allowing our policy to be set um, around political slogans is uh, extremely dangerous. And so we've had now three presidents, essentially, um, you know, Obama, uh, uh, Trump, and now Biden, all of whom said, oh, we have to end the endless wars. Um, 2,500 forces on the ground in Afghanistan to prevent the Taliban from being able to do what they've now done, to prevent safe havens uh, that the Taliban, who, by the way, never has renounced al-Qaeda, uh, in fact, the leader of the Taliban swears allegiance to the leader of al-Qaeda. Um, anybody who tells you uh, that the Taliban renounced al-Qaeda or that they ever agreed to renounce al-Qaeda is just not true. Um, and so we should have done a better job, our leaders should have done a better job at explaining to the American people why we need troops deployed, why they're important for counterterrorism efforts, for our counterintelligence efforts. Um, and uh, the, the notion that you're you know, going to simply announce we're withdrawing uh, was wrong. I think it reflects a misunderstanding about America's role in the world. Uh, and again, what we were able to accomplish with you know, a relatively small force um, was certainly an important element of our security. And when you look at what's happened today, it is heartbreaking. Uh, and, and on top of the fact that the policy of withdrawal was wrong, certainly the way that it's done is, is indefensible. And I just saw before I came that there's been this announcement sent out to Americans in Kabul, you know, get yourselves to the airport and we'll get you out. But the U.S. military cannot protect you getting to the airport. Mm. Um, now, that is absolutely stunning and unacceptable. And, and, and President Biden's speech yesterday, in my view, was appalling. For somebody who um, told the American people that he was an expert on foreign policy and told the American people that he was compassionate, um, that speech was blaming everybody else, showed no understanding of the reality of what's happening on the ground, um, and was not the kind of speech that the leader of the United States of America uh, should ever give. Well, President Biden said yesterday, as you well know, that he was surprised, that even he was surprised at how rapidly the Taliban was able to overrun the country. Should he have been surprised? Did we know that this was a very real possibility? He should not have been surprised, um, and he should have listened to the military advice that, that, that I'm confident he was receiving. Uh, I think he ignored that. Um, and and the consequences are grave, not just for what it means for us in terms of our security and our ability to defend ourselves from Islamic terrorism, which, you know, now we have to undertake an entirely new and expanded effort to do that because they will have a caliphate. Uh, what it means for us globally, you know, who, who is going to trust the United States watching the footage that we're seeing now out of the Kabul airport? Um, and, and what it means in terms of the, the, the way that we have empowered our adversaries, uh, it is, it's going to be uh, something that will take concerted effort to recover from. And, uh, and he should have listened to his military advisors. You know, uh, speaking of surreal, you mentioned the scene at the Capitol when it was being attacked. Uh, a surreal scene, I thought, today was when the Taliban held a news conference uh, for world media, and they pledged to uh, not 
seek reprisals against those who supported Americans to allow Americans to leave. Do you believe any of that? No, of course not. And um, this was one of the, the problems of the last several years. And uh, we have now seen since the devastation that is on our, our televisions all across the country about Afghanistan, attempts by people in the Trump administration to, to sort of rewrite the history on this. Uh, and I think that is is also wrong because we ha- this has been such a devastating event that as a country we have to make sure we learn the right lesson from it. Um, you know, at the time that uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, was uh, meeting with Taliban leaders, uh, was negotiating with them, uh, there were many, many of us who were saying you cannot negotiate with terrorists. And the the document that that some now are claiming was some sort of real agreement, was a surrender document. Mm. And and the idea that the Taliban was ever, you know, going to um, provide for U.S. security or not provide safe haven to terrorists is just not true. And, and I think it's important for us going forward to learn the lesson of what happened here in a way that is fact-based. Not true, and some would say ludicrous on the face of it. Right. How could this crisis have been avoided if... Do we stay, or could we have gotten out in a way that did not create this current crisis? What could President Biden have done differently? What could President Trump have done differently to lead up to this moment? What should Biden have done? Uh, he, he should have stayed. And um, But for how long? When does it end? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at uh, U.S. forces deployed in Germany, U.S. forces deployed in Korea— um, we have to really look at the facts of what was happening on the ground. You know, 2,500 forces, we were working with the Afghans, we had trained the Afghans. The Afghan army was doing the majority of the fighting, uh, but they had our uh, air support um, and and they had our ISR. They, they were in a position where, um, you know, we were able to prevent the takeover of the country. We were able to slow and stop uh, the establishment of safe havens. We had intelligence operations we were able to conduct. Um, And the idea that you go from that status quo to this disaster uh, as a matter of a policy decision is indefensible. Um, Not to mention what's happening now, you know, Pakistan is on the border, obviously. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. We've created a completely unstable situation. You're going to have Afghan refugees, um, you know, certainly contributing to instability in Pakistan. Um, which is very dangerous. So there's there every at, at every single moment here, um, you know, the impact of this decision is is going to be uh, grave and 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 in some cases catastrophic. And so we should not, not have withdrawn these troops. We shouldn't have withdrawn the troops, and we shouldn't. You know, you you don't say, well, you know, we're going to defend American security for twenty years, and that's it. And and you don't end wars by leaving. You know, what what happens, what's happened is that the terrorists have won in Afghanistan. And so that's not ending wars. And that was that's something, you know, President Obama talked about. I'm going to end wars. And and we saw what happened in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the the withdrawal from Iraq uh, led ultimately to the establishment of the caliphate. Um, that we then had to go back in and defeat. So it, it's it's important for us to understand what those forces are doing and why they need to be there. Uh, Congresswoman, one something like one trillion dollars spent in Afghanistan, eighty something billion spent on training Taliban forces. 
all to no avail. Training Afghan. Afghan fighters, yeah. 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 Uh, all to no avail, as we've seen, as soon as we uh, remove our troops, the whole thing collapses. Was this doomed from the start? No, and I, I would disagree that it was to no avail. I think if you look at, you know, we went into Afghanistan, uh, obviously, after 9-11. And, and it's important to remember that before we invaded Afghanistan, um, we said to the Taliban, give up al-Qaeda and we will not come in. Right. And, and that should have been a lesson. If the Taliban wasn't willing to give up al-Qaeda facing the kind of military action that they faced, the notion that something else was going to incentivize them to do it is just not right. Um, but, but we have to recognize, and I, you know, the way I look at it is there's, there's one question, and the question is, what does our security require? And if you determine, as I think is right, that U.S. security requires that the terrorists can't establish safe havens, um, then you have to determine, all right, what is it going to take uh, in terms of, of our activities on the ground to prevent that? And it is not fair to say, and it is actually, I think, shameful to say the Afghans aren't fighting. Mm. Um, you know, the Afghans uh, fought alongside us for 20 years. They took the vast bulk of the casualties, um, and they were able to do that in part because we were providing air support. We were providing training. We were providing weapons. And, um, you know, once you pull that away uh, and you create a situation where America seems like we've, we're departing and washing our hands of the situation, um, it's not a surprise that we would be where we are today. But it is, it is tragic. Well, and I, I guess I use the phrase to no avail because I wonder how the history books will judge the time spent in Afghanistan, given how we just left. We may have to go back in. Who knows? But how we just left and what do we show for it other than, of course, getting bin Laden many, many years ago? Well, what will history, how will history judge this episode? I think it's very important that history recognize that, uh, you know, after 9-11, we've now gone 20 years without a mass casualty attack launched from Afghanistan. And every American and allied service member who fought in Afghanistan um, needs to know that that is an important, hugely important element of keeping us safe and that what they did um, is something that we are all grateful for. And so, um, you know, having our forces deployed there kept us safe. Now that they aren't there, the cost of defending the nation is going to increase. Mm. And the risk will increase as well. And the well. threat will increase, yeah. Uh, we've heard today from a number of uh, service men and women who were there, some came back wounded, some did not, who are r very frustrated, angry, heartbroken about what they're seeing because they served there. They worked alongside the Afghan fighters and the Afghan people, and they are sickened by the images that they're seeing, and they feel that, that we as a country have abandoned the Afghan people. What would you say to them? We have abandoned the Afghan people. Um, you know, I, I think that um, the fact that we um, did not put in place, apparently, the planning to be able to evacuate American citizens. We didn't put in place the planning to be able to uh, evacuate Afghans who worked with us. Which we could have um, done weeks ago, right, leading up to this. Yes, and um, and there will be, I'm, I'm confident, many investigations into what happened. The fact that we turned over Bagram Air Base and now are trying to evacuate people uh, from, you know, Karzai International Airport, 
uh, you know, th- those things will, um, you know, uh, people will have to explain why that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the bottom line um, of abandoning the Afghans when they were fighting with us and we gave them a commitment and, and think about the Afghan women. I mean, that, that is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, when, and, and when I see, you know, people today saying things like, well, you know, maybe the Taliban is, you know, going to be a new and improved Taliban. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just wrong. Um, if anything, the Taliban will be stronger than they were before. Uh, better Having organized, better fight it. Yeah. yeah. And being able to claim this tremendous victory against us. So uh, I think that um, this this will go down as as one of the worst and most dangerous foreign policy decisions uh, potentially in the history of the country. Hmm. That's a big statement. Are you worried about the human rights violations that are likely to come against women and others? Oh, I mean, we're seeing them already. I mean, it it is, um, you know, when you have uh, Afghan women who, you know, we worked with and and encouraged and, and who demonstrated unbelievable strength and commitment to rebuilding their nation and their society. And now um, they're being raped. They're being forced, you know, into um, these relationships, raped by the Taliban fighters, killed, tortured. Um, you know, it, it is. Uh, and then then for President Biden to have made the decision that has caused this and then for him to stand up and say, you know, listen, we're going to continue to speak out for the Afghan women. You know, I mean, that that is uh, really, really cynical and, and disingenuous. In the days, weeks, months, even years that follow, what must we do in Afghanistan now? What is our path forward? Well, I think several things. One is uh, the Biden administration has got to put together a strategy um, uh, that is a, a very clear strategy for how we are going to ensure we're not attacked again. Um, this has fundamentally changed all of the calculations about how do we uh, protect the United States uh, from terrorist attacks. Uh, and, and one of the things that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is all of the prisoners that have been released from Afghan prisons over the last 72 hours or so and the ones that were released before under the Trump agreement – um, they are populating not only, you know, terrorist activity inside Afghanistan, but terrorist organizations globally. Mm-hmm. And so they will. And so I think um, it clearly, as you've seen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and others say, has increased the threat to the United States. So the Biden administration, number one, they have to get the people out. They have to get the Americans out and they have to get the Afghans out who helped us. That's got to be number one. Um, and number two, uh, they've got to make sure that they're putting in place a plan that reflects the increased resources, the increased focus and attention it's now going to take to protect us. Can you see a situation where we go back in? Look, I uh, I think it's, it's very uh, hard to imagine at this moment, um, uh, but I, I think that the the Biden administration has to take a very hard look at what's necessary. I mean, the the idea that we have let this happen— um, and it could have been avoided with the status quo, uh, you know, that that's something they will have to answer for. All right. Let's turn our attention now to the coronavirus. Uh, United States seemingly caught on its heels at the start of the pandemic to us and slow to fully respond. Now the Delta variant is once again, as we know, filling our hospitals. Could this have been avoided and how? 
Well, yes. Uh, and I think the Chinese government bears direct responsibility. Uh, and, you know, one of the facts that I think tells you the responsibility that, that they bear, and, and there are discussions about did it come from, you know, the lab? Uh, did it come from the wet market? I think it looks increasingly like it came from the lab. Um, but the fact that the Chinese government stopped all travel uh, from Wuhan province to the rest of, the, to, to the rest of China, mm-hmm. so they said you can't come into the rest of China if you're in Wuhan, but they allowed travel into the rest of the world. That, that act alone is the spread of this virus because they clearly understood they had human-to-human transmission. They were trying to protect themselves, but they unleashed it on the rest of the world. And the economic consequences, the, the consequences in terms of lost lives, um, all of those things are the direct result of the fact that the government of China unleashed this virus on the world. So what do we learn from that? How do we protect the world, not just yeah. this, from this happening again? What's the lesson learned? Yeah, I mean, I think several things. I think, one, we have to be clear-eyed about the, the responsibility of the government of China. Uh, I think the world has to be. I think, um, you know, I, I support the notion that, that they need to pay restitution. I think that the consequences of this, um, you know, we all are vaccinated. We're all, um, you know, likely going to have to get shots on a regular basis, probably. We don't know what kinds of... Um, uh, variants and, and mutations you're going to see of the virus, but we're going to be living with this probably for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And that that is a, a circumstance that I think they've got to be held responsible for. I think it also... Is that going to happen? Will they be held responsible? Well, I think there are just... a number of ways that it needs to happen. Um, I think one is, you know, uh, countries around the world need to recognize the danger that they pose, and, and that has to affect where supply chains are. It needs to affect you know, where we produce pharmaceuticals in the United States and where those supply chains are. Um, it needs to, uh, you know, as, as we're going into this, this next phase of sort of the, the great power competition, um, I think that, that the fact of their unleashing of this virus should, should be very, a very clear lesson for people about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the nature of the government of China. And when you think about things like, you know, those who say America should withdraw from the world, people that have the Rand Paul view of the world, for example, um, don't uh, understand that if we withdraw, there's a vacuum that is filled, and that vacuum is filled by China. It's filled by Russia. Uh, it's filled by people who do not share our views of the world. They don't share our, our views about democracy. And, and you really do have to ask yourself, do you want to live in that world? Mm. Um, but but we need to be able to build allies and bring them together around standing up against um, the you know a global surveillance state, which is is the Chinese model here. But of course, the next pandemic may well not come from China or even that part of the world. And, and clearly, this this uh, last fifteen sixteen months has made us very aware of our vulnerability to yeah. the potential something perhaps given our modern way of living in modern science, we took for granted that this could really happen. The next virus could be far worse. Yeah. What, what are the lessons learned for us? Well, I think there are some lessons learned um, that, that are good ones. Um, if you look at the fact that the United States um, was able, uh, through Operation Warp Speed, um, which was another policy of the Trump administration that was a really good one, 
um, to develop vaccines in a relatively short period of time. Um, the, the fact that we have been able to respond to it, I think, is important. Um, but I, I think we, we need to make sure that we're doing everything possible to provide the resources to uh, NIH, to the CDC, um, so that, you know, we are protecting ourselves. Um, and I think it needs to, we need to think through uh, the vulnerabilities and what's necessary to respond when you have, um, you know, a, a power like China willing to unleash this kind of, of death on a global scale. Mm. You know, from the start, President Trump downplayed the severity of uh, the coming pandemic. What would you say to governors like um, Greg Abbott of Texas, who, as we know, just tested positive uh, for COVID himself, asymptomatic? We certainly wish him well. But uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida, who continued to resist mandatory masking and other pandemic safety measures. You know, what would you say to those leaders, Republican leaders, uh, who have not embraced some of the mandatory masking, mandatory vaccinations, and, and those two states particularly seeing huge spikes in coronavirus cases. As a fellow Republican, what would you say to them? You know, I think this never should have become political. And, uh, and I do think President Trump bears responsibility um, for the fact that it did become political. Uh, and I think that decisions going forward you know, I, I think those decisions have to be made based on what, you know, the best public health information is at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you have, uh, you know, local school districts, for example, that believe that they, they have to mask in order for kids to be back in person, uh, those decisions should be made based on health. Um, so I think we have, there's a whole series of um, decisions around masking decisions around vaccinations, that we have to do everything we can to get the politics out of. At the same time, I think we as a society are going to be dealing with uh, the consequences of kids not being in school. And and those are very real. And I don't think we know the full cost of that. And so uh, when you look at, you know, many kids have been out of school for over a year. Uh, and that that is... The, the, the cost of that in terms of education, the cost in terms of, um, you know, mental health, uh, I think are very real. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we need to we need to be thinking through how we're going to address that and address those issues. But, you know, issues around public health ought to be made based upon, uh, you know, medical advice and medical guidance and, and not politics. What would you attribute? Uh, you mentioned President Trump, but but beyond that, just as a culture what has happened where where science uh, has become so politicized and that we, as, as someone said recently, that we don't uh, debate reality as much as policy anymore? What, what has changed in this country from your perspective? I think that we, in many ways, uh, have, have sort of lost um, a common set of facts, uh, not just about science, but about many things. And uh, some of that is because of social media. Um, some of it is because of the algorithms those social media companies use that sort of drive people to more and more radical places to get more and more likes and clicks. Um, and and we need to think through um, how we get back to a place where uh, we can debate facts and we can say we have different perspectives on what the solutions might be, uh, but but it's very difficult and challenging if if you're in a situation that's sort of post-truth. And I think the combination of people being at home so much, having so much time on the Internet, 
the algorithms that are being used on the internet, um, the the siloing of information. And, and look, we see this. I think Fox News does it. I think MSNBC does it. They don't want people changing the channel. So you sort of, you know, tell them what they want to hear. And that means that, that, you know, there is no longer a set of basic, you know, recognizable facts we can, you know, base our, our uh, movement forward on. And I have my facts and someone else has their right. facts and never the two shall meet. Yeah. Really, is what. Yeah. Uh, let's turn now to another topic that, that, uh, that we are increasingly concerned about. Hundreds of, and that is climate change, hundreds of thousands of uh, acres are once again on fire in California as we face another devastating wildfire season, exacerbated, most experts say, by human activity. From a policy standpoint, uh, what do we do as a state and a country? What do we need to, how, what, how do we need to address the concerns of climate change in the, the years ahead? Yeah, I think this is another issue that, that we really need to get the politics out of. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, if you look at... Um, at the forest fires, for example, one of the things that I know we face in Wyoming and I, we face across the country uh, is bad forest management. And years and years where we have not had the timber sales that we've needed to have at the numbers we've needed, we haven't had the ability to have things like the roadless rule. When you combine the roadless rule with the beetle kill that we've seen in some of our national forests, you end up with, you know, uh, dead trees that nobody is allowed to go in and clear out. And, and so you, the, the forest fires are a direct result um, of those bad management policies. Um, I think, you know, one thing we do need to look at if, is look at the last year and a half. And, and because of COVID, clearly, uh, and I haven't looked at the numbers, but I, you know, I would imagine that you know, uh, emissions were down because people were not driving. They weren't out. They were in their homes. That is true, actually. So Pollution was down. So you, so you had a you know, year and a half where carbon emissions are down, and, and it would be interesting to see, well, did the temperature decrease as well? And it didn't. So uh, recognizing and understanding policies that you want to put in place and making sure those policies – have a direct impact on what you're trying to do. So if, if the, the purpose is we have to deal with global warming, um, then I think it's incumbent upon us to say, all right, what policies really work? And too often what we've seen in Wyoming, for example, is policies that are put in place from Washington um, that are incredibly damaging to our economy um, but don't actually affect ultimately global temperature. So, um, you know, you have a situation, for example, in Wyoming, we are are doing really interesting and innovative work on carbon capture and carbon sequestration. And some of the proposals on what to do about the environment that come from the far left basically ignore all of that. You know, we just have to move completely beyond fossil fuels, which is not is not realistic. And, And I think we need to recognize progress that's being made uh, and come together to find solutions that actually are solutions. You know, a growing, a small but growing number of Republican leaders have, have started more publicly to acknowledge that global warming and climate change is an issue and that it has been exacerbated uh, by human activity. Um, but there is great, and you allude to it a moment ago, great disagreement as to what to do about it. And there's real reluctance to, to dramatically change our reliance on fossil fuels. 
do you think we at some point need to dramatically change our reliance on fossil fuels? You know, I think that we need to recognize um, that fossil fuels are fundamental to, to running the economy and that we have made huge strides at being able to get access to those fossil fuels and being able to use them in ways that um, have less impact on the environment. And I think that's very important. Um, you know, in, in Wyoming, we also have wind energy. Um, we, we, you know, we're now going to be the site of a new nuclear facility. Um, and I think that's all important. Um, but I think we have to be realistic. You know, uh, wind energy is important, but wind energy, when, if you're worried about the view shed, you know, when you drive between Laramie and Cheyenne and you look out, you don't just see beautiful prairie anymore. You see an awful lot of turbines. Mm -hmm. And those turbines have a very negative impact, for example, on, uh, you know, on our eagle population, on our birds generally. Um, and what do you do when the turbines break? Where do you put them? You know, you end up with landfills full of turbines. So there are consequences to all of these decisions. And I think it's really important for us to say, what are we trying to accomplish? Let's do things that actually accomplish it, not just things that maybe make us feel better, um, and, and ultimately don't contribute to uh, improving the environment. You, may, you say that fossil fuels are fundamental to our economy, and surely, the, surely they are. Do they have to remain that way in the decades to come? Can we or should we, and I ask the question openly, ultimately move away from fossil fuels? Look, I, um, I, I don't believe that we should. I think that, you know, my view is those fossil fuels are, are actually a national treasure and that we have been able um, to provide reliable and affordable electricity, uh, to do it in a way that uh, really does reflect um, how important it is to be good stewards of the environment, and it has improved significantly. So, you know, if you look, if you come to Wyoming, and, and I'll take you to show you land that's been reclaimed from um, you know, our coal mines, for example, the land is in much better condition in some circumstances than it was prior to uh, the, the, the mining. And so, again, I think it's about let's be honest about what we're able to do. Uh, let's be honest about uh, the way that we have been able to now get access to oil and gas in a way that makes us energy independent. I mean, if, you're, if you're talking about national security threats, um, foreign adversaries, you know, would, would like nothing more, for example, than to be able to, um, you know, shut down our grid, mm -hmm. to be able to make our grid not reliable. And, you know, we've had challenges with that here in California um, and in Texas. And, and so I, I think we should be doing things that ensure that there is a supply of, of energy for the grid and doing it in a way that, that reflects it, that we need to do it at a low cost um, way so that we're so it's affordable, but it's got to be reliable as well. You know, we've discussed some of the issues in this country that are important that are making a lot of headlines. Is there anything that you or your colleagues are looking at that that maybe aren't making all the headlines that we need to address as a nation? You mentioned stability of our power grid is a good example. Is there anything else that that is on the horizon that you think we'll need to address as a country? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm on the Armed Services Committee, so um, a good part of my time is spent focused on the, the national security threats. And, uh, you know, on, a, on certainly a weekly basis and sometimes a daily basis, 
uh, we're reminded on the committee um, that the the sort of the the stability globally and the primacy of the United States and um, the primacy of our military forces, those are things we've taken for granted, mm. and they're things we're losing. Uh, and when you uh, look, we had, for example, the uh, commander of Strategic Forces Command testify uh, several weeks ago in front of the committee, and you know he talked about the progress that China is making in terms of modernizing its nuclear. Uh, forces, and he said it's breathtaking. Mm. And so, mm. you know, we we are now facing adversaries who uh, are making advances in space, in cyber, uh, AI, uh, and in in you know nuclear forces in ways that present a real threat to us. And I think it's it's important for the American people to recognize that our security and and our prosperity and our freedom depends upon being able to deter adversaries. Mm. And that deterrence um, requires that, that our adversaries know we have the capability and we have the will. And that's the best way to ensure we, we don't have to use our military force. But, but weakness is really provocative, um, as we're seeing in Afghanistan today. Are we, uh, are we getting behind in these areas in a dangerous way? Um, yes, we, we are... Um, you know, facing a situation where um, there are areas where we no longer have uh, the advantage that we had before. I guess that's the best way to put it. And, um, you know, part of this is, and I particularly look at China in this regard, I think the Chinese government has recognized for many years and has been very determined to uh, advance on multiple fronts against us. And, And I think both parties got China wrong. Both parties sort of said, you know, will open up economically and they will open up politically. Uh, and that didn't happen because for a number of reasons, but at about the same time that they were opening up economically, the technology uh, to conduct a global surveillance state, certainly, and, and certainly you know, a national surveillance state for them, uh, became available. So we really do need to recognize the danger if China, for example, gets ahead of us in space. Uh, if China gets ahead of us on AI or on cyberspace. And we have to put the kind of determined, concerted effort into preventing that um, that they are today putting into uh, trying to accomplish that. Congressman, is your concern regarding China from an economic standpoint or from a military standpoint? Look, I think that they um, they are a threat across the board because their view is um, that they they must replace us. Their view is that you know their own as success, the world leader. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that their own that it's a zero sum game, and so and it's not just us. I mean, if you look at what the Chinese government has been doing, look at what they're doing with data. You know, there have been the news stories recently about um, some of the testing, for example, that pregnant women around the globe use, um, which it's become clear that the company that produces those tests um, has connections to the Chinese military. So when you take those tests or when you do 23andMe or any, you know, that data goes right back into into the Chinese government. And I think those kinds of things we have to be much more aware of uh, and and recognize the vulnerability that that, that poses. Mm. You're on the Armed Services Committee. What keeps you up at night? 
<laughs> well, I also have five kids. So. <laughs> that, that may be <laughs> even more of a, right, exactly. a, a yeah. worrisome issue. Depending on the day. Um, no, look, I mean, I think what keeps me up at night is I worry that the United States, um, that, that we have begun to take for granted uh, how important our role in the world is. And we've had a series of presidents now. Uh, I would say, beginning with Obama, um, who, who, you know, didn't fundamentally recognize the danger of American withdrawal. And, um, and I, I think that, you know, we cannot get into a situation where um, we say, you know what, we, we don't have to worry about that, whatever the global issue is, because somebody else will take care of it. Um, the lesson really has to be American strength, um, America being able to um, convey to our allies that they can count on us, um, American leadership in the world really matters. And um, I think that, you know, we're now in a situation we've got the debt that is, you know, growing in ways that um, itself is a security threat. Uh, we've got new spending that's being proposed and and the the allocation of funds, you know, it's spending too much, um, but that the uh, Defense Department budget is insufficient, and uh, and and I, that keeps me up at night. That that we will lose the ability to deter adversaries, and that an adversary will make a calculation um, that they can challenge us or they can threaten us, uh, and that we will have lost our ability to deter it, and that makes conflict more likely. On the flip side, what makes you sleep soundly at night about where we are as a country? <laughs> Not the five kids, but... Yeah, no, well, some of the times they do too. But look, what makes me sleep soundly at night is that we're, we're America and that we have uh, tremendous potential, um, that the ideas that are at the heart of our founding, um, the miracle of our founding, um, the miracle of our freedom... Uh, is is incredibly powerful and important, and and I will tell you specifically in the time since uh, my vote on impeachment and the months after that, one of the things that has been really tremendously moving and inspiring has been the reaction of young people, mm. young people across Wyoming, uh, young people around the country, and and young women especially uh, who who have reached out to me, who've come to my events, who've come to talk to me to say thank you and we want to fight for our constitution and we want to fight with you. And and it's not it's not a partisan thing. Um but it is really moving and inspiring mm. to see that reaction from our young people and that gives me tremendous hope about the future. On that subject from our audience, how do you keep going when your whole party seems to be against you? What motivates you to keep going? Um I love this country. Uh, I um, I believe in the values that we stand for. Uh, I've watched and worked in places around the world where authoritarianism took hold, where they don't have a peaceful transfer of power, and I know that I and you know all of us have a duty to stand up and to protect this unbelievable miracle, this jewel that we have. Um, and um, so that, to me, you know, that is the only thing that matters. And um, history will judge my colleagues who have put politics first. 
uh, or who continue to embrace uh, the former president, um, who continues to be an ongoing, uh, you know, clear and present danger to to this democracy. And um, people have an obligation to stand up against it. And again, very strong words, and and certainly a lot of Democrats believe that. But it's fascinating to hear from a Republican as you as you are to say that he is a danger to democracy. Did he you is. ever think that we would have a president who you would call dangerous to our way of life or our democracy? Um, I mean, I, I don't know that anybody could have imagined that we would be in this situation. I, I think a lot about the um, the quote that's inscribed over the fireplace in the dining room in the White House, um, which uh, I believe is John Adams, and it says, "May may none but honest and wise men ever inhabit this house," and and I think that is one of the real lessons of of what of January sixth and of what we've lived through and we're still living through. Um, it really matters. Uh, and, and this is a lesson for my colleagues. It really matters that you uphold your oath. You mm. cannot look away from what happened. You can't look away. You can't say, well, you know what, I, it's more important to get reelected uh, because the whole system, which was constructed by the framers, you know, they, they, they required that we take an oath for a reason. And, and the system depends upon it. Yeah, you mentioned the quote, honest men. What's the quote? Uh, I think it's may none but honest and wise men. Honest. And of course, it should say women. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> need to etch that We're, in there. <laughs> well, I was going to ask. Uh, we should, maybe, will you etch that in at some point? If you ever, will you become, will you I'm run for president? I'm funds to <laughs> get that etched in. Do you have an interest in running for president? Will you run for president? Look, I, I am totally focused on um, uh, doing everything that's necessary, obviously, to represent the people of Wyoming um, and to help make sure that that we um, that we prevent Donald Trump from uh, being the Republican Party nominee uh, and and uh, ever getting anywhere close to the Oval Office again. Do you really think he would run again? Or is I that do. just talk? Yeah. You think he yeah. might? And I think that 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 it is such a dangerous possibility. We have to assume it. Um, and, and I think we can't, you can't ignore him. I think there are Republicans who say, well, just, just ignore him and he'll go away. Um, but, but he, he's, he is, uh, very much committed to, um, you know, I think having power again. Mm. And I think it's important that we make sure that doesn't happen. As a skilled politician, she didn't answer my question. As a skilled journalist, <laughs> I'm going to ask you again. Do you think you'll run for president? I mean, can you Look, see? I, I, can, I, uh, would you be open to that? Let's phrase it that way. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not something that I'm announcing here in San Francisco. <laughs> this, we want to know. <laughs> You're not going to let me break that story. No, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, it, for the sake of argument, let's assume you you had an interest in running for president. Uh, would it be how hard would it be, given your stance and, and your being at odds with so many of your party? That would seem to be an incredible rock to push uphill. I think that for the country, um, we have to have a Republican Party that is not uh, captured by a cult of personality. And 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 I think that that's what's really important. I mean, we're we're going to have an election in 22. We'll have a presidential election in 24. 
the majority of my party is not captured by the cult of personality. But there there are people who and they've been deeply misled and betrayed by Donald Trump. Um, and he's a man who his idols uh, are people like Vladimir Putin and Erdogan. Uh, how do you and, explain that? How How is that even possible? Look, I, I uh, again, I go back to what's etched over the fireplace in the White House. And um, <laughs> and but but, you know, we it matters whether you elect people who are committed to the republic. And I think what we have seen is, you know, that 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 wasn't his priority. But so many people who support And you are relentless. That's <laughs> <laughs> what they pay me to do. <laughs> uh, it, there, but there's so many people, uh, and I, I'd like to say well-meaning people, but so many people who have bought in yeah. to what he stands for, and they to this day believe him, and they would right. vote for him again. And Look, and I, yeah, I, and I think that's it's a really important point because he has been engaged in just such a fundamental betrayal of millions of really good, honest, hardworking people around this country. And, you know, every single time, for example, you see a fundraising solicitation that he puts out that says, you know, join me today to help me stop the steal or join me. You know, it's it it is it's a fundamental betrayal. Mm-hmm. And, and he's taking people's money um, and and doing it in a way that is based on a lie. Um, and uh, and I, I just I think that that's why it's so important for us to really be able to go back through and say, look, he did not win this election. And and by the way, in addition to, you know, the constitutional danger, um, you know, he, he's a he's a loser. And so if you look at, you know, um, you know, while he was president, the Republicans lost the House, the Senate and then the White House. So uh, in addition to the constitutional problems, a he party was not good embracing for the party. him, no. If you want to win elections, that's not the way to do it. Uh, last question we'll ask. How do you juggle uh, being one of the most powerful people in Congress, living in Wyoming, living in Washington, being the only representative in Wyoming, which means you have to cover the entire state, raising five kids. There's a lot going on in your life. This is a long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> We're done. This yeah, is the last yeah. one. Yeah, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you juggle all of that? Um, and do you enjoy juggling all of that? Yeah, look, I, I don't think uh, that there's any, any sort of, you know, clear answer. And I ask mothers this all the time, you know, compare notes. Um, I, I think that um, there's several things. I mean, one is... Um, being able to convey to your kids and my parents conveyed to Mary and me, you know, that no matter what else was happening, what's going on at home is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, Phil and I try our best to do that. Uh, I also think, though, having grown up in the family that, that I grew up in and watching both my parents be engaged in causes that are bigger than them and, and, and understanding their love of this country um, and their love of history. Um, those are all things that, you know, I hope I can pass on to, to my kids. And, and look, they keep you totally, they, they really help you with your perspective. And if I, I'll tell you one story. Sure, please. So uh, this is a story from the 2004 presidential election. And we were on a bus ride uh, across Michigan. 
And uh, our second daughter, uh, she was about six, maybe, and um, or five. And um, she was riding up in the front of the bus with my mom. So it was a big campaign bus going down the road. And not everybody in Michigan liked George Bush and Dick Cheney. I know it's a surprise, but <laughs> not everybody did. And so we were rolling through a town, and there was a group of people, and, and uh, one of the people flipped the bird at the bus. Yeah. And so my daughter, uh, you know, said, Grandma, like, what's going on? You know, what's happening? What's that person doing? And my mom said, oh, sweetie, they just, they're telling you they think you're number one. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it's, it, but they definitely sort of keep you grounded right. and keep your perspective on things. Um, and and one final thing is um, what's happened in the last six months uh, and and talking about what's happened with my kids um, and and thinking about the possibility that, you know, we all grew up in a place where we have a peaceful transfer of power and we all know we could count on that. We took it for granted. And suddenly finding, you know, looking at my sons who are the youngest, they're still at home with us uh, and thinking, wow, are they going to grow up in a country where they can't count on that? And and that that I have to do everything possible to make sure that that doesn't happen. I will tell you one quick story. I, I covered, uh, I, they sent me to cover uh, President Trump's inauguration. Hmm. And I remember I had not covered, I covered almost everything you can in politics, but had not covered an inauguration. So I was glad to go see that and witness it. And I remember thinking, as I looked at the dais and, and watched the proceedings, I felt pride yeah. knowing that this was a man that a great many people, Americans and leaders, did not think should be president. But nonetheless, he won the election. And here we are peacefully transferring power yeah. to someone many people opposed. And I felt a sense of pride that as a country, we could do that. And you're right. Very to see what happened yeah. uh, with this past election was disheartening yeah. and can't yeah. be repeated. No, we, we have to treasure and value um, what, a, what a special thing that is so much that we put it above politics. Right. What a great conversation. Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Thank you. Thank you. We also want to thank our audience, both here and online. So nice to be back in person with you, and thank you for joining us online. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Future of Democracy series, and we've certainly discussed the future of democracy here today, supported by Betsy and Roy Eisenhart. Uh, my name is Dan Ashley from ABC7 News and proud board member of the Commonwealth Club. This, one more time, please, for the Congresswoman. Thank Big you. Hand. Thank you. Yeah. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you all for being here. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.